0: Welcome to Clarity. Hosted by me, Larry McCann. My apologies. I didn't know we were rolling. I gotta say, I feel fantastic. I've been trying this new raw food vegan diet and I have so much energy I can barely contain myself. And I encourage all of you to give it a shot. I no longer need to take a three hour nap after lunch. So put down the sandwich and pick up the salad. You'll thank me later. That said, there was a common problem for people switching to this new diet. Bloating and gas. But don't worry, I've got your back. Unless you're farting, of course. Then I'll give you a wide berth. There are some natural remedies. I've heard that eating raw papaya will reduce some of that. And according to JackDunnTheBeanStock.com, which is a fantastic name, ginger, apple cider vinegar, and asparagus are all good ways to reduce flatulence and bloating. But right now, let's cut to our main story. Sweet release. I may have to go wipe. You cut already, right? Absolutely. First off, I want you all to take this with a grain of salt. This is more of a thought problem than an attempt at capturing some universal truth. We're adapting the Dungeons and Dragons alignment system and applying it to figures relating to feminism. So just to give some background, Alignment is mostly something that applies to fictional characters. When you try to adapt it to real-world people, you're always going to be simplifying things. So feel free to send me feedback, and as always, I encourage a discussion. But in the words of a wise man, all hate mail will fail. I find it touching like Braille. The reason I bring this up is Chelsea, in a prior episode, mentioned chaotic evil. So I spent some time and I looked this up. Will lent me his Tome of Nerd. uh, Sorry, I mean the Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition Player Handbook. And it has a section explaining some of these terms. But generally, it is breaking individuals up into whether they're evil, good, or neutral. And it's also breaking up whether they believe in order or chaos. So, for example, lawful good. People aligned this way can be counted on to do the right thing as expected by society. Sort of the prototypical good guy. Some examples are Marge Gunderson from Fargo, Susie Durkins from Calvin and Hobbes, and the Greek god Athena. Next up, we have neutral good folk who do the best they can to help others according to their needs. Some examples of this are Wonder Woman, Amelie, from the self-titled movie, and Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter series. Chaotic good individuals act as their conscience directs, with little regard for what others expect. Some examples might be Mary Poppins. For you Harry Potter fans, Luna Lovegood. And for you Star Trek fans, Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine. Now we're moving on to neutral territory, starting with Lawful Neutral. People inclined to this alignment act in accordance with law, tradition, or personal codes. This one can be a little tricky because that code isn't necessarily good for others. This alignment is more about following the rules than making a moral decision. And that's what separates them from lawful good. Some examples are the DC comic character Amanda Waller, Stannis Baratheon from A Song of Ice and Fire, or Game of Thrones for you laymen, and to stay consistent with female mentions, Pearl from the cartoon Steven Universe. Will made me add that one in. Moving along, we have Neutral or True Neutral. This is the alignment of those who prefer to steer clear of moral questions and refuse to take sides, doing what seems best at the time. This one was a little tricky to find even fictional examples. Dame Judy Dench's portrayal of M in the James Bond series is a good example. Zoe from the TV show Firefly is one potential, and one of Will's favorite examples, the neutral planet from Futurama. Now we're starting to head into slightly darker territory with chaotic neutral. These kind of people tend to follow their whims. They're a little selfish, holding their personal freedom above all else. Some fictional examples are Catwoman, Elizabeth Salander for the Millennium Trilogy, and Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. They're unpredictable, hard to know what they're going to do. Now we're fully on the dark side, starting with lawful evil. If you have this tendency, you'll methodically take what you want within the limits of a code of tradition, loyalty, or order. Some examples are Dr. Doom, Tina Turner as Auntie Entity, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and Starlight Glimmer, apparently, from My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. I cannot personally vouch for that last one. So after Lawful Evil, we have Neutral Evil. This is the alignment of those who do whatever they can get away with without compassion or qualms. Some examples are Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians, Cersei Lannister from A Song of Ice and Fire, and the entire cast of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Finally, Chaotic Evil. This is the worst of the worst. Any psychopath will fit into this category. These individuals act with arbitrary violence spurred by their greed, hatred, or bloodlust. The classic example is Heath Ledger's portrayal as the Joker in The Dark Knight. For a literary example, most of the cast of Marquis de Sade's book, 120 Days of Sodom, would apply. And you can also put in Sharon Stone for her portrayal as Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct. So now that we've defined these terms, I'm proud to present the fully trademarked Clarity Brand Alignment Chart. At Lawful Good, we have Dr. Mary Koss. She's clearly working within the system and has shown great compassion to do good. Dr. Koss is featured in Episode 9. Next up, Neutral Good with Tarana Burke. She's willing to do whatever it takes to help the downtrodden and overlooked victims. She's less concerned with what the laws say and more concerned with helping the needy. Tarana is the founder of the hashtag MeToo movement and is mentioned in episode 5. Coming in for chaotic good, we've got Margaret Atwood. She's willing to step on anyone's toes, but I believe her heart's in the right place. Atwood is the author of Handmaid's Tale and has been championing women's rights against every side of the political spectrum for decades. You can learn more about her in episode six. Now we're moving on to neutral territory. With lawful neutral, I'm gonna go with Hillary Clinton. I think she has a very clear code, but in my personal opinion, that code's not necessarily the best thing for everyone. She sticks to it to a fault. You may be thinking, who could possibly be truly neutral? Who's totally objective, generous, kind, fully aware of everything? Oh, that would be me, Larry McCannum. You might remember me as the host of this podcast. Next up with Chaotic Neutral, we have Issa Rae. Not the real person, but her character on the show, insecure. I want to make that distinction abundantly clear. I do not know Issa Rae. I wish I did. I hope the interviewer meet her at some point. But her character on the show has Chaotic Neutral tendencies. She's a bit selfish. She seems willing to bend the rules whenever it suits her and isn't very considerate of others. Moving on to the dark side of things. For lawful evil, we have Vice President Mike Pence, aka Skeletor. He is a religious man with deep convictions. Some of those convictions are he cannot be alone with a woman if alcohol is involved and his wife is not present. In this day and age, we have leaders of state who are women. You should not have to have your wife in attendance to meet with them. He may be well-intentioned, but whatever code he believes in has led to some troubling decisions. For neutral evil, we have Dr. Lysak, or Lysak, if you want to be generous. As you've heard on the show, in episode 10, he has essentially led a campaign to vilify sex offenders on college campuses, which in of itself is not a bad thing, but he's misconstrued evidence refused to retract his fallacious statements, and attacked other academics for actually doing some research. I think his motives are in question, and I think his integrity is in question. And for the grand finale, Chaotic Evil, as I mentioned before, a classic example is Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker. And one of the quotes from that movie is, some men aren't looking for anything logical. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. And if that's not the perfect description of President Trump, I don't know what to tell you. This is a deeply troubled man who is actively fighting against feminist issues. So again, don't take this too literally. Every person is going to show a range of good behavior, bad behavior, neutral behavior, The world's not this simple, but I thought it would be a fun process to try to apply some of the individuals I've talked about on this podcast and fit them into this alignment chart. I hope you enjoyed this segment, and don't forget to check the visual reference. Next up, I sit down for an interview with Brianna, who works in student affairs at a university, and heads a department teaching students about consent and other issues concerning sexual assault on college campuses. We're live on location on the campus. I wanna thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Can you please introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely. My name is Brianna, and as you said, we're on a college campus. I'm a college educator, and happy to be here with you today.
0: Can you please describe your position and what it entails?
1: I currently serve in a dual role on campus. I am the director of our prevention education services. and that area, I oversee all of our education on consent, bystander intervention, sexual assault resources. I also do education and awareness on alcohol and personal accountability, as well as intercultural dialogue. So that's one of the departments that I oversee. I also am the director of sorority and fraternity life. So just, you know, a few things happening. Just a
0: few. Those all sound fantastic, and they really tie into elements of the show that we've covered. To step back a bit, you're going to get me talking all day about those things. One aspect of the show we like to do is just be on the same page. Part of what that entails is I'd like you in your own words to define feminism.
1: You know, for me, it's so funny. I don't know that I have ever really thought about what my personal definition of feminism is, but at the end of the day, when I hear the word feminist or feminism... To me, that's just any individual who believes in women's rights and who believes in supporting women and equality. So I think that for me, that comes in a lot of different forms. I don't think that every aspect of feminism looks the same. For me, I think the very bottom line is that it's that you are someone who believes in the rights of women.
0: I think that's a great answer.
1: Excellent. Already an A.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. What inspired you to pursue this career?
1: As a high school student, I was really involved in my high school, but I knew that I wanted my academic career to be in journalism. So I pursued a degree. I have a bachelor's in journalism. And while I was on campus taking my classes, I loved my classes. I love the art of writing. I love the art of storytelling. What I disliked was when I was in internships or even in conversations with some of my peers, there was so much trying to outscoop the next person. And I just kept thinking, like, that's not what drew me into this interest. At the same time, I was very involved on campus. I had been an orientation advisor. Then I was the student coordinator for our orientation. I was an academic advisor. And I'll never forget, it was the fall of my junior year, and I was in my one-on-one meeting with our assistant director of orientation. As I said, I was the student coordinator of orientation at the time. And she said to me, So what are you going to do after graduation? And I kind of scoffed as any fall semester junior would, because I thought to myself, after graduation, I've still got at least three semesters. And, you know, and I said, I don't know, I guess I'm going to get a job at either a newspaper or a magazine back when magazines were a thing. And she said, well, have you ever thought about going into student affairs? And I said, well, what's that? She said, well, what do you think I do? I was like, I don't know, come to campus and hang out with us all day. She said, yeah, well, I had to get a master's degree to do that, and so that really was my first introduction into the fact that there was a whole career out there in the field of student affairs and that what that encompassed. I always was really intrigued by education, but I could never see myself as a teacher, a high school teacher, an elementary school teacher. I I couldn't see myself in that aspect. But all of a sudden, I realized that there's this whole world of education out there. Students come to college, and if the statistic still stays up, I believe it's that they spend something like 80% of their college career happens outside of the classroom. And so if you think about the learning that happens in that 80%. So that's really what brought me into this field. And it's been really interesting. I I have a master's degree in higher education and counseling, and now have been doing this for almost 20 years.
0: And that's appreciated. (laughs) And one thing I want to ask you is, It seems like colleges, they have a lot of fantastic programs. Mm -hmm. I think that's indisputable. But how do you raise awareness for the students? Mm -hmm. Because they may be too busy doing extracurricular activities Mm -hmm. to really recognize the opportunities they have outside of the classroom, like Mm -hmm. you're talking about.
1: Well, I think, well, one, it's our role as the administrators, as the educators, to create programs and services that really draw students in from day one. That starts with admissions. How are the admissions staff going out there and recruiting students so that they can really sell their colleges and universities? I truly believe that if you just want a college education, you can do that anywhere anywhere. This day and age, you can do that online. You can do that at any school. So I think it's really important for universities and colleges to really do a better job and do a good job of telling who are you, why, why this institution. Because again, you could get a degree anywhere. So why get a degree here? Why spend the money? And then I think once the students commit, it's about what we do during orientation programs to let students know not just how to register for their classes, but what does that life look like? For the most part, particularly a campus like this one, we are predominantly a residential campus, particularly for our first year in transfer students. And so when they are here for their first semester on campus, how are we working with our housing staff to make sure that they are informing students of those experiences? What are the other offices that students are engaging with? So I think an institution like the one where I work And I've worked at a number of different institutions around the country. I'm originally from the East Coast. I've worked in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the Midwest, the West Coast. And for me, what this institution has that other institutions, while they have it, not to the level of this one, is that your staff also has to work together. At the end of the day, we're all here for the same reason, and that's our students. The reason we have these jobs is because students have chosen to come to this institution. And it's, I believe, our responsibility to give them the best experience that they can have. So I think it's how we collaborate and work together and come together for shared goals and objectives to make sure that our students are having that. In this day and age, I mean, when I was in college, you know, people would put flyers up on the wall. Nobody's looking at flyers anymore, you know. And so now I think it's also important for us to keep up with the times. And part of that is I'm a big believer in bringing students to the table because they're going to tell us how to get things done. They're going to tell us how to increase awareness amongst their peers. They're going to tell us what's going well, what's not. One of my best examples, I do this annual fundraiser for our local rape treatment center, and for the first two years or three years that I did it, I couldn't figure out for the life of me. I was getting plenty of donations from staff and faculty, but I was not getting donations from students. There were these two students at my desk, and they were helping me organize some stuff, and I said, why? Like, what do you think? And they said, well, Brianna, it's because you only accept cash or check. And we never have cash, and we don't own checks anymore. And they said, if you had a Venmo account, it would change. We opened that Venmo account, and within an hour, I would keep the sound on on my phone. It was cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. It's just so funny that my brain never in a million years would have thought about a Venmo account. And the students said that's why you're not getting donations from students. So I think you're always remiss as an educator if you don't turn to your students and ask them for input.
0: That's wonderful. And I love that mentality. I think the students, as you're saying, they're the ones you have to reach. And I I do love what you're saying about what is the university gonna do for them. It's not just a sheet of paper. You're really trying to improve all qualities of their life. And I wanna ask you, one of the articles I've read has pointed out that the first and second semester are the most at risk times for a new student. What are you doing to prepare those new students or what are they lacking from high school?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And to clarify, I assume you mean at risk for sexual assault, sexual misconduct? Yes. So absolutely, I have so many opinions about that. I can tell you what we are doing, but I think to back it up, you hit the nail on the head. One of the reasons that colleges and sexual assault on college campuses, you know, of course, have been in the headlines for years, or the past two, three years, it's become very big headline news, And as it should be, you know, I think that colleges absolutely have a responsibility to address these issues, to provide education and awareness and to really do that education. But I do feel really passionate about the fact that one of the things that most of the headlines and the articles leave out, these students aren't born the day they come to this campus. I was going to say I'm not sure, but I'm convinced that we are not doing the proper education with students from earlier ages. You can start conversations on consent and you can start conversations on bystander intervention at early ages. Of course, it's not gonna look the same, the conversation you have with a college student that you're gonna have with a middle school student or an elementary school student, but you can start those conversations. And I think that we as a whole education system in this country have not done a good job doing that. And then all of a sudden they show up on college campuses and they haven't had the alcohol education. And again, I'm always hesitant to, talk about alcohol when we talk about sexual assault, because if there's one thing we know, we know that alcohol does not cause sexual assault. However, I do think we would be remiss if we did not look at the intersection of the two. Then I don't think that we are doing a good job And I'm very open on that when I talk to our parents during orientation sessions. I'm very open about that when I talk with our students. And so same thing, our students are coming to this campus and they haven't had this education. And then all of a sudden, all eyes are on colleges about, well, what are they doing? And frankly, I'm ready to turn eyes back to the younger education systems and say, how are we partnering? Because they're coming here and hitting the ground running, and they haven't had enough education. So I think that's one thing, and clearly that's something I get really passionate about. But I do think it's really important, and I have a lot of friends and colleagues around the country at different universities and different institutions, so I've had a lot of conversations. I've been to a lot of conferences, and I think one of the things that is really important is you can't just do education and do awareness education for the sake of doing it. It's not about checking boxes. I think that the institutions that have more issues are institutions that are just worried about checking boxes whether it's about the Dear Colleague letter guidelines, whether it's about VAWA, whether it's about Title IX, it's not about checking boxes. You should be doing those things and then look at those boxes and say, huh, yeah, they're already checked because it's part of our ethos as an institution. That was our experience. What we found was when we looked at what we were doing when a lot of those guidelines started to come out, we were like, wow, we're doing most of this. But what we're not doing a good job about is communicating that with our campus community and constituents And maybe we need to centralize it. And that's frankly how I got pulled into this role. It's certainly not something that I have a specific background in. I've worked, again, in student affairs for 20 years. I've done trainings and programming and and support services, but I didn't have a specific background in social work. But it's really about how that comes together in packages.
0: I think we're just going to fight through this. Uh, Hopefully it's a temporary noise problem. I love everything you're saying. And I think what it got me thinking was high schools might not even really have sex ed. Middle schools, too. And that if they have it, it might just be don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, no nuance, no preparation for the real world. Mm -hmm. Just we don't want to talk about this. Absolutely. And on top of that, I believe California is one of the ongoing consent states, correct? Uh, Affirmative consent. Affirmative Mm -hmm. consent. I believe New York's another one. You're getting students from other states, too. They may not even be aware of this concept.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I think that's very important in these dynamics.
1: It is important. What's also, though, important when I'm having conversations with students about affirmative consent, and I, again, I should preface, I am not a lawyer. I do not have a legal background. But my understanding, when I've looked at that law, um, when I've spoken with our university general counsel... The thing about affirmative consent that is both great but also difficult is that, so it comes down to, you know, helping individuals understand that yes means yes, right? It comes down to helping individuals understand affirmative consent means that it has to be a yes, but that it doesn't necessarily have to be verbal. That's what gets really tricky, right? And how do you do that? How do you educate students about that? So it really is hard because I remember at some point there was an article I read, and this was when the affirmative consent first came to the books, was that someone was looking to do an app where, I can't remember it, I don't think this app ever came to fruition, but this app where both participants would click, okay, we've affirmed. And and the joke that I would make in my trainings with students is, okay, one of the things that you as students tell me that's so difficult about consent is that, oh, Brianna, it ruins the mood. Well, what's going to ruin the mood more than whipping out your phone and being like, hey, but before we go any further, let's just check out this app here. And then also part of consent, and we teach our students consent, we have this beautifully, perfectly constructed 180 word definition of consent that our general counsel has made sure is in alignment with our values as an institution, but also law and I always, again, joke with the students, okay, here I am, the main consent educator on campus. How am I going to teach you 180 words about consent? Let's all hearken back to high school freshman English, and here, let's get our Hamlet soliloquy hats on, right? What we did, and again, we spent a lot of time curating this, but we looked at that definition and we had some heated conversations, but we realized there are four words that come down to it. And if you as a student, you as an individual can remember these four words and you know the definitions of them, now you know that 180 word definition of consent. So clear, the idea that it is unambiguous. So you have clear consent from all participants. So there's no maybe, there's no I'm not sure. Consent is clear. Consent is coherent, right? So there are many of our students who are taught in high school, if you've had a sip of alcohol, you can't consent. They're like, well, that's what the law says. That's actually not what the law says. The law says you can't be incapacitated. So but what does that mean? Students, again, when we talk about alcohol education, at the very least, they're told, well, okay, 0.08 is your blood alcohol level when you're legally intoxicated. Okay, but we don't have a blood alcohol level for hooking up. And even if we did, nobody's rolling around campus being like, hey, here's my breathalyzer. So before we make out right now, if you could you know, do me a favor. And so how do you get down to incapacitated? What does that mean? So coherent, the idea that someone has the full understanding of what they're doing, the who, what, when, where, why, how of those behaviors and actions, right? And then helping teach students, what are some of those signs when you know someone's no longer coherent, no longer capacitated? Because there's a difference if 20 years from now you're in this loving, committed, monogamous relationship and it's your anniversary and you go out and you each have a glass of wine. It would be really ridiculous to think that when you come home, you're like, well, congratulations on 20 years of commitment, but we've each had a glass of wine. So clearly the law says we can't consent. Right. So helping students talk about what does that look like? What does coherent look like? So clear, coherent, willing. The idea that consent has to be of someone's own regard. It cannot be through force. It cannot be through manipulation, peer pressure. Someone has to give their own willing consent. And so that's where we talk about the idea of why a boss and their staff member there can't be consent or a a coach and their player, because there's that question of pressure. Is this actually of a person's own accord? And then, of course, ongoing... Whether you've said yes to one thing, that doesn't mean yes to the next. Maybe you said yes yesterday, that doesn't mean yes today. And again, I don't care if you've been married for 40 years, you always have the right to revoke consent. And so if you look at that, when we talk about affirmative consent, if you look at clear, coherent, willing, ongoing, then if you can understand those four words, now you can have a more working definition, right? The majority of us are not lawyers, and especially our students If I think about from a developmental standpoint, I'm dealing with predominantly 18 to 22-year-olds who, in a cognitive development theory, are still very much in the lower levels of cognitive development. They're looking for right or wrong answers. They're just learning to have more critical thinking. How are they supposed to understand a legal definition? We need, I think, as educators to really challenge ourselves to come up with ways and then to have real dialogues with them. I want to engage them. I'm not there to lecture. That is one big thing about all the curriculum I write. It is about being interactive and engaging. They don't want to just hear from me. I need to know that when they leave and when they are in these situations, that they're able to talk with each other about how to get consent. I, I, I'm speechless. I love that answer.
0: <laughs> and I really love how you broke down consent into four words. Mm-hmm. I think that helps unpack, like you're saying. instead of a 180 word definition. Those four words can stay with you. And I think they do capture all the important aspects.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think you touched on so much that where the idea of marital rape mm-hmm. is a relatively new concept, which that blows my mind a little bit.
1: Well, it's crazy because it's a new concept, you know, and I use that in air quotes, except it's not. And, you know, and even the this idea of assault on a college campus, this isn't new. All of a sudden we're talking about it, but this is not new. This morning, I was really having a hard time. I was reading the LA Times article about the medical doctor at USC. For 30 years, he's been the sole gynecologist at USC. And there have been reports over and over and over about sexual harassment, about inappropriate sexual contact. And I read that. And I'm like, OK, so 30 years. And that's just one example, right? An example of how many heads were turned and just ignored it or brushed off reports. Yes, we've been dealing with this in headlines for five or six years at this point, but this is not new. And all of these concepts are not new. I just think that we are finally talking about them. I agree. And I'm glad that we are now starting to talk about them. And the
0: thing I worry about is we'll talk about it. Oh, problem solved. Mm -hmm. And no, this takes a real commitment from the top down. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about with students is very important. What caught my ear is you were talking about how students don't seem to have the cognitive tools to deal with these nuanced conversations. And I don't think that's something most high schools are preparing them for. Like you're saying, it's more this date, this happened, where it's just rote memory. They're not using their thought to really pick Mm apart and figure out how they actually feel. That doesn't seem to be taught. Mm -mm. Do you think there's any kind of program in high school that does do that or one that you could imagine being effective?
1: Oh, I could absolutely imagine one being effective. I've often joked with my staff member, I said, it's time for us to write a program and take it to the high schools. And I've actually been interviewed by some local high schools, people who have been interested in the program that I've created and how we could potentially translate that for high school students. And I think it's possible. I mean, at the end of the day, for me, when I was asked to take a look at what was happening on our campus and to develop something, I looked, I evaluated, I brought key players to the table. First, other staff members. What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What issues are the students experiencing? Then, students themselves. What's going on, right? And I don't think that this is just college students. I think at the end of the day, students are human beings. And like anyone else, they want to be engaged in a dialogue. And I think, to be very honest, This is hard, and I hate to sound like one of those old people that says things like, well, this generation. But if you think about it, with social media and what we have seen such an increase of students not having skills to come together and have a conversation. Again, as I mentioned, part of the work that I do is intercultural dialogue education. And at the end of the day, what that is, is about trying to teach students how to have a conversation across difference, right? That just because you and I differ, one, doesn't mean it has to get mean, right? It can get a little heated, but it doesn't have to be mean. And two, doesn't mean that we can't walk away, agree to disagree, and still interact. And it also doesn't mean that we can't learn from each other. And that applies not just to interculturalism, but it applies when we're talking about consent. One of the things that I do in my sexual misconduct education program is when we're talking about the consent, I put up this scenario. And the scenario is tweaked but it's really based on a judicial case that we had on this campus a number of years ago and it's purposely murky if you will and the reason it's purposely murky is because and I am so thankful that I'm not a person who has to adjudicate these cases and I'm not a person who has to deal with these cases in law because I think the majority of them are not easy And again, I'm sure someone would say, that's me not being in full support of the survivor or the person who's experienced the misconduct or the assault, depending on what the situation was. But I don't think that they are always so yes or no. And for me, what's really worrisome about that is that I don't want to give our students a scenario and say, is this consent or is this not consent? And then they all go, that's not consent, and smile and nod and walk out of the workshop. No, I want them to dialogue. I want them to debate because that's what's happening on college campuses for the most part. These are, for the most part, not incidents where it is a stranger forcing themselves onto a person and you never see them again. For the most part, these are incidents of two people who know each other somehow and for some extended period of time or maybe even if it was just for that night, but have found themselves in position and one or both of them are not equipped to know what is and is not consent. While I would love we were all just born knowing what consent is, we aren't. And I think if, again, as an educator, if we don't do our part to educate people on consent, then how do we expect them to abide by consent? And again, that's why I go back to, it starts from an early age. They don't come to this campus understanding consent. And so if a person has been socialized from a very young age to believe that a certain type of behavior is okay, well then, of course, They're going to find themselves as someone who has perpetrated assault. And again, I don't condone that behavior, but I come from it as that educator's perspective is what are we doing? And I keep saying educator and I keep saying school, but this is really bigger than a school issue. There are plenty of people who go through elementary school and high school that don't come to college campuses. And those individuals are not remiss. This is a larger society issue. I think we are fortunate because on a college campus and an education system, we have a captive audience, which gives our responsibility to handle these topics higher up. But the minute they leave these college campuses, they're interacting with students who are on other college campuses who may not have had as good of an education around these topics. They're around people who may not have an education beyond high school. And if we're not doing this work in high school, it's so layered. It's so complicated.
0: Absolutely. It is a mammoth task. I will wholeheartedly agree with that. One thing that Dr. Mary Koss said that I appreciated is that this is an educational institution. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Part of that is trying to change behavior. Mm -hmm. And she deeply believes that people can be helped. That doesn't mean punishment doesn't have to happen. But in terms of seeking some kind of resolution, what, what are your thoughts on that for maybe not the most severe kind of sexual assault, but some of these cases, do you think that an offender has a chance to redeem themselves or should they just be removed from the campus?
1: I think those are not necessarily the only two options. Do I think that an offender has a chance to redeem themselves? Absolutely. Again, I think assault is assault. I am not trying to slippery slope my way into victim blaming. Assault is assault. But I stand by the fact that if we, and I'm using we not just as educators, but society, these folks, family, if this person has never been taught what is consent, You know, we could lift our hands up and say, but they've never been taught to assault someone. Okay, well, that's not good enough. Have they been actively taught what is consent? They are guilty of assaulting someone or harassing someone or exploiting someone. Well, let's give that person a chance. Maybe that person still needs to be removed from the campus, but maybe then they can go start over at another campus. So that's why I don't think it's either or. And I don't always speak very articulate about this, but I think this is where the crossover, and I know you have some opinions about Dr. Lysik's work, but for me, that's where there are two separate things, where he's talking about, and I'll probably get the percentages way off, but, you know, 94% of all incidents are being perpetrated by the same 6% of the population. Well, I think that's probably not the most accurate, but I get what he's saying because this is an issue. These are people who is, of course, going to do this over and over again. For the most part, not everyone, I'm sure some of those individuals are on college campuses. But for the most part, what we're seeing on college campuses are incidents of two individuals who have found themselves in a situation where at least one of those people, but maybe both, don't understand consent. And because they've never been taught it, they've never been taught how to talk about it, they've never been taught how to ask for it. And again, part of the education that I do is we spend some time talking about how to ask for consent and also how to revoke consent. It's so interesting to me, but how to ask for consent, I always joke with my students, OK, so this is going to be the five most embarrassing minutes of my workday, right? Because let's talk about how you ask for consent, you know, and they all start to giggle and blush and I give them some examples and they kind of giggle and blush. But then for me, I expected that, right? But the more surprising when I first started doing this education was when I said, and then let's talk about how you revoke consent. First and foremost, say no. And a lot of people laughed. And this happened over and over again. And I finally said to a group, I said, you know, I have to ask, every time I say start with say no, people kind of giggle nervously. Why is that? And so many students said, well, it's hard to say no. I don't know how to say no. And again, with the affirmative consent, I know it's about getting that yes. But I also am worried about a generation of individuals who don't know how to say no. I had a student once say to me, well, I felt bad saying no. Why? Say no. I want to teach that type of empowerment, too. And I also recognize there are people who say no, and the perpetrator doesn't stop. And I recognize that. We talk about other ways to try to get out of that scenario. To go back to Dr. Koss, I do think that absolutely there are opportunities for folks to be educated and to redeem themselves and to have a second chance. And that doesn't always necessarily mean that they can come back to campus sometimes maybe it does. These situations vary widely. And then there are absolutely situations where I think Dr. Lysik's research is talking about those individuals, right? But I think there's a full spectrum. And I think, again, where my most experience lies, when I think about what's happening on college campuses, I think we are dealing with individuals where we have failed them because we have not educated. And we being families and school systems, I think that's where it is our responsibility to change behavior and to change culture.
0: I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Brianna. Join us again next episode, and we'll continue our conversation covering an array of topics concerning student life on college campuses. But right now, let's move on to our sponsor segment. We've offered you snacks, both sweet and savory, a GPS system, relaxing ambient tracks, pickles, grooming products, medical marijuana, and hats. So you might be saying, Larry, you've already given so much. It would be selfish of us to ask for more. And you'd be right. But clarity is the gift that keeps on giving. That's right. Act now and go clear. The first completely trademarked all-in-one clarity treatment, including but not limited to ear cleaning treatments, articulation courses, QEQR, empathy building seminars, and the cream in my cannoli, the glaze on my donut, Oh, okay, those got inappropriate quickly. I truly apologize. Experimental laser eye treatment. If it doesn't work out, at least you'll look like a cyborg. Sign up today!